Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. Not ever. These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. (laughs) G'day, Mark Kenny here with ANU's Democracy Sausage Extra. In recent weeks, the dispute over what is history and how it is rendered has taken on a very urgent physical form. Sparked by the brutal police murder of George Floyd, people of colour and many others in cities across the US, Britain, Europe and Australia have been protesting against police violence and the multiple forms of social, economic and political disadvantage. Most protests have been peaceful, but others have become pitched battles with police, with shops looted, cars set ablaze and monuments defaced or torn down. Much of this has been spontaneous, but to see the removal of statues as mere vandalism is to miss a point that is very closely related to the abuse and murder of countless African Americans and other minorities dating all the way back to colonisation and slavery. And of course, Australia has its own slave history, largely airbrushed from our national myth, but its vile tendrils reach right into the present. To discuss this, I've assembled an excellent panel. Dr Julia Baird is a historian, author, columnist and of course presenter of the ABC Current Affairs program, The Drum. Hi there Julia. Hello. Welcome to Democracy Sausage Extra. Professor Paul Pickering is a historian also. He's uh, director of ANU's Research School of uh, Humanities and the Arts and of the Australian Studies Institute, which by the way makes him my boss. Paul is an author of countless books and papers and he's a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. Welcome Paul. Hey, welcome Matt. And Stan Grant, who as well as being a Rajri, Kamala Roy and Dawarol man, is an award-winning broadcast journalist, author and these days an academic at Charles Sturt University. Thanks for joining us, Stan. Hi, nice to be with you. So let's get into this debate about whether we should be tearing down statues of prominent men. And let's face it, Julia, they're all men, aren't they, really? All rich men and all white men, it seems. 
Yes, that's pretty much exactly right. I mean, someone did a study in the UK um, relatively recently and found that about, about 8% of the statues were of women and most of them, of course, are either um, royal women like Queen Victoria who has her fair representation of very unflattering statues <laughs> um, throughout the empire um, that George Bernard Shaw complained about them because he thought she was just so... Um, it did not represent her at all, and unfortunately, generations will, will think of her as a rather, you know, extremely stout and extremely stern woman. But aside from Victoria um, and Boadicea, there's um, and Liberty, these abstract female concepts. You're right; there's very, very few um, statues of women around. And so, what's your? I mean, you've written a a very interesting piece in the Sydney Morning Herald over the weekend, uh, just gone, where um, you said that you know there's a lot of people quite alarmed about, or there are obviously people alarmed about the tearing down of these statues. Uh, but you uh, sound a, a different note about that. You say, well, actually, um, this is history being reinterpreted and and in a sense reunderstood. Yeah, it's a necessary revision. I mean, we have not talked about history so much for quite some time, or at least in this form. What was the legacy of empire? What do we accept? What does it mean in a in a culture which is still grappling with, you know, grave racial inequality that we have statues of slave traders up, um, you know, in, in Australia as well as in the UK? Um, look, when I, when I – and I say – and history, of course, is not a static – thing like it, it it and people talk about erasing history and it was actually restoring history what we're seeing with people with graffiti and with height hanging their signs and with, with challenging these statues we are seeing what scholars have been doing for decades saying you know what um let's have a look at what at how that that person benefited from the slave trade let's have a look at how that person treated you know um was with women or you know and 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 look at it's full legacy and that's something we need to do so if we don't do that then it's just kind of a propaganda or it's just kind of spin and the implication being that statues which are often you know um erected years and decades after the death of the relevant person for a political purpose um you know particularly in the u.s for example um that, that you know those confederate statues have been used as a sign of white supremacy that's absolutely undeniable so um I think what's happening now is an expression of a contesting of history. I was just looking at what was happening to Edward Colston. That, you know, the slave trader, that has been toppled into the river, but it's been rescued and now in some secret location they are repairing that statue but maintaining the hole. I think there's a hole in its backside, a heart-shaped hole from a falling, you know, from being rolled along, keeping the graffiti and showing that at this time in history, we began to seriously, we seriously talk about race and this is what happened. And I think that's really important. There's another statue of Queen Victoria that was blown up in, like, I think 1963 by anti-colonial separatists in, in Canada. And in a, they, they placed metal explosives in her lap, um, you know, not appropriate for a royal. That would raise the hackles of many Britons. But now the head of that statue is in a museum nearby that tells the story of that separatist, you know, of that movement and of that moment in time. So this is real, it's living, and I think it's really important because we are seeing the legacy of the invisibility of women from history. We are seeing the legacy of um, 
the trauma of generations past um, of slavery here and in other countries, and we are having a reckoning with it. So this is an inevitable part of it. Paul, what's your take on this? Because uh, you've made the point to me that, um, uh, you know, this is what uh, totalitarian regimes tend to do also. They they essentially erase uh, powerful people who are who are the subject of monuments. Uh, they erase history, really, in order to establish a new version of, of history. Um, is that your concern here? Well, I guess it's um, one of my concerns, Mark. Um, I did some work a few years ago um, with Alec Tyrrell on what we called contested sites in in Britain, um, and it, it's very much a discussion of the rise of the control of public space, a, a contest over the control of public space, and that's played out a lot in democracies in a different way that it does in totalitarian regimes, which is usually when regime changes um, sites of memory from statues right through to street names are erased and re-inscribed with um, a new invented tradition, if you like. But it's in democracies or in evolving democracies, the, the issues about the control and contest of public space have been, have been much more uh, complex um, and um, in some cases more nuanced in the way that they've been, uh, the way they've unfolded. And it really reflects, I think, the fact that as the famous historian uh, Pierre Nora put it, the, there is a difference between history and heritage. History is about trying to understand the past and heritage is always about the present. And the two are not the same thing. Um, I think Julia's article was fantastic and I agree with it um, wholeheartedly, except for the fact that I don't think they're the same thing. Sitting in the archives is a different uh, form of activity than um, living history in real time, that is watching things being pulled down and dumped in rivers and so forth. And I'm, let me say I'd be there dumping it in the river for, uh, as well. But I think those two things, heritage and history, run in parallel, but they're not actually the, the same thing. And that question of, um, you know, that similarity with totalitarian regimes, with autocrats, uh, is an interesting one, but it has its limitations too because this is a popular activity, uh, uh, that is a spontaneous activity by people rather than an official activity by whoever's in charge now and who decides to, you know, erase some, some you know, admired or, or previously lauded figure of history. So in a sense, there's a, there's a fairly fundamental difference in this and it, it is history in itself being made uh, right now in respect of those historical figures and the decisions to to represent those historical figures in that way. Would you agree with that, Stan? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I think the point's been made uh, really well here, and that is that statues are not history. You know, statues are a representation of who we were and who we are. Uh, and the difficulty for us in trying to have this conversation, it's uh, if we raise it, and I'm speaking here as, as an Indigenous Australian, if we raise it, we are seen as somehow attacking the state, that our truth is seen as an historical war, a war on history. We have the Prime Minister using that language. I don't want to engage in a history war. When our truth, when our attempt to try to speak to this power is categorised as an attack, as a war, 
when it, is, when it is weaponized, it makes it so much more difficult to do as Paul was discussing, was describing there, to approach this in a democratic way. I mean, you know, I, I raised, I thought, very gently three years ago at the height of the Confederate statue issue in the United States, the question of, of the Cook statue in Hyde Park, which still proclaims that he discovered this territory in 1770. Um, our High Court doesn't believe that. Our laws don't represent that. Our welcomes to country tell us that is not true. But a statue that stands above us all in our biggest city still proclaims this as fact. Um, in even suggesting that we might revisit that, that we might even look at, at an ancillary plaque or some way of, of representing that that view is now redundant. I had the Prime Minister at the time, Malcolm Turnbull, accuse me of being a Stalinist. I had the Daily Telegraph describe me as Taliban Stan. I mean, to even broach this subject, we are seen as attacking the state. We, we saw the image over the past week of a ring of police standing around this inanimate object, around the Cook statue, which at worst is, is vandalised and you can clean it, um, standing around that while we've had Indigenous sites, heritage sites, blown up by Rio Tinto in Western Australia. And that should tell us everything about what we value, that we will ring a statue with police and our law will allow for a mining company to destroy our heritage. That's what speaks to the reality of power still in Australia. Yes, it's an absolutely extraordinary um, comparison of two, two contemporaneous events and absolutely different different sort of treatment of them. And as you say, it, it says so much. Um, I want to read you uh, just a – I'm reading from a story that I saw on the BBC, but it's in relation to uh, the the tearing down of the stet- statue of Edward Colston and throwing it in the river in, in, in Bristol, which, uh, Julia, you mentioned and, and did you, Paul. Uh, this is from someone called Keziah Wenham Kenyon. He's 25 and he's been living in Bristol for four years and he said that the statue is a part of history that shouldn't be glorified. We have suffered transgenerational trauma and this is the result of it, he said. This is a very raw and visceral moment for the black diaspora. It's important to highlight a lot of the people in the video taking down the statue were white in an act of solidarity and it's not a black people problem, it's a human problem. And I've seen other accounts of uh, of people talking about the moment when this statue is pulled down, uh, and, and just in, in people of colour in particular, uh, who are talking about it as being incredibly empowering in a way that they they'd never felt before. And it struck me that that right there is the is the power of that of that statue of that monument, the passive, slow but corrosive power of that monument standing in the middle of the city proclaiming the greatness of someone whose wealth and behaviour was, by our standards today, by any moral standards at any time really, um, utterly reprehensible. I guess that's really what you're saying, isn't it, Julia, that uh, there's a process of history that is ongoing and this is a a reflection of it, the removal every bit as much as, as as the erection of it. 
Yeah, but it's not it's not just a, the act of removing it now. It's the act of saying we know more about this person now. We understand more fully, you know, the legacy the legacy now. I mean, look, what in But they had known about this for some time. I mean, this sub, this statue had been the subject of a fairly sure. long campaign for its removal which had just been ignored by the authorities. Right, and they had lost patience. And you know what? I felt that way too, when partly because I spent so much time reading about King Leopold II when I was writing my biography of Queen Victoria, and I was so appalled by him as a human being. Now, in his time when he kind of basically bought his way to be the so-called sovereign of the Congo Free State, that was between 1885 to 1908, right? In that time, which he exploited it mercilessly for rubber, for ivory, his rule was so brutal. It was the first time they used the phrase crimes against humanity. The population of the Congo went from 20 million to 10 million. And it wasn't, he didn't just kill people, he maimed them. He cut off um, hands um, of people who didn't come quickly enough with their taxes or their deliveries of whatever products they needed. Personally, he was also, you know, pretty revolting. He paid 800 pounds a month to, um, to people in Britain to ensure a steady supply of British virgins to be delivered to him in Belgium. He made his um, preference for um, girls aged 10 to 15 very clear. Um, and actually I first started looking into him when I found a this is very wry, very smart lady-in-waiting of Queen Victoria called Mari Mallet, and she describes this unctuous monster, she says, who kind of came up and tried to make himself reputable and credible by meeting with the Queen, and he had these long curling fingernails and he could only shake with two hands. So having then read everything I could on him and then switching my attention to Belgium where he was so disliked at the time of his death that his, his funeral procession was booed. I mean, they'd finally worked out the atrocities and what he got up to, extremely unpopular. Then they go through a, a stage of what's called the great forgetting and he was called the builder, the great man of infrastructure, the builder king, Leopold II. There are statues of him everywhere, right? A couple of them have been contested. And when I saw that he'd been set on fire and, in fact, there was even a debate about this man <laughs> occupying a space, and let's not forget what a plinth is. I mean, it's a pedestal. You are elevating someone. You are placing them to, a, you know, a position of, you know, prestige and, and repute. Um, but I'm, it was acutely conscious when having this conversation with my historian friends um, who I've called and spoken to a lot, that a lot of this debate is is, is very academic for us. So I, I, I delight in it because I think, oh, good, now we can know, learn more about this person and we can all fully understand our history and I was calling um, a friend of mine who's a curator the other night to, to, to talk to her about Cook and what she thought she should do. And she said, you know, the simple truth is every time I listen to an Indigenous person, to an, um, an Indigenous historian, my views change. And I think there's a lot of us that cannot fully understand what it means to have Cook there. We just don't fully understand that. So I think it's actually a time of... Should be if we could have a time of great listening, that would be a, that would be a fantastic thing. We absolutely need to be challenging the version of history we're given. It's not just history now; it's not just a wave now, but it's we've been given um, a kind of a sanitized version of history that completely erases misery and trauma of the past, and thereby can like be you know subject to the charge of, of kind of glorifying it, or even you know <clears throat> subtly or inadvertently condoning it. And that's the problem here, Mark, in Australia. I mean, we can talk in an abstract way about 
the statues of the United States or Colston or what we might do with King Leopold or what's happened in other countries. But this is here. This is our country. This is real for us. And, you know, when I, I have real difficulty with the Cook legacy, that we are constantly told that we should see this man in his entirety and wasn't he a wonderful figure of the Enlightenment? Um, wasn't he an extraordinary sailor? Okay, all of those things indeed may be true. Um, but he was also a person who, in spite of all of that enlightenment and knowledge, had no problem claiming this land, knowing full well there were people here to whom it belonged. You know, Governor Macquarie, we're told, is this great father of Australia, um, gave us the idea of modern Australia, emancipated convicts, gave convicts equal rights to to free settlers, all of these things we are told about this character who also ordered his troops to strike terror into the hearts of Aboriginal people, to kill Aboriginal people with the Appen Massacre. We also hear that, you know, Arthur Phillip was this man who came here to establish this new colony and there would be no slavery in this colony and was a friend of the Aboriginal people who ordered what contention uh, and, and his men to cut off the heads of Aboriginal people. We have statues, we have street names, we have buildings, we have monuments to these people that we know sought our destruction, sought mm. our destruction. And when we try to have that conversation in Australia, it's so much more real for us here than to talk in an abstract way about what may be happening elsewhere. But we are disqualified from having it the media won't allow us to have it. Our politicians won't allow us to have it because it is framed as an attack on the state, that we cannot hold two ideas in common. We cannot look at these people in the full light of their, of their history, that we must still glorify people who sought our destruction. That's what makes it so difficult for us as Indigenous people to engage with this and to free ourselves from that history. Yeah, no, Stan, Stan's absolutely right. I mean, the the con contest over public space has always been about freedom and democracy. It's always about um, the struggle against um, dominant tropes. And he's also correct that there's pretty much everyone except the statue itself accepts that that statement it's, is, is incorrect. I guess the question is, what, what do you do with it? People who've studied statues that, and the pulling down of statues have suggested that these are acts are acts of closure. Um, and the question is, is it time for closure or do we want to rebrand them as a constant reminder of the, of the errors of the past and of the injustices of the past? Um, and I think that's an open question. Um, Tearing down Cook and dumping it in in Botany Bay may be an uh, may be justified, may be a, a, a fully uh, a really important act of closure. But then, do we forget? Is rebranding it? Is putting a competing statue or monument alongside it a more effective way of reminding us? of the injustices of the past. And I think they're open questions.
No, I, and I think they're good questions, Paul, but I think that we, we haven't even begun. I mean, people are now, we haven't even, you know, as Stan said, when he begins to even talk about a park, it's this massive drama. I don't think there's any threat of the kind of many statues of Cook and that one in particular being torn down and put into the harbour. I think that there's this sense of great impatience that very little has been done about it to, to date. Can I just add, though, to what Stan was saying before? I mean, the, the reaction to even talking about it. Now, I witnessed that over the weekend when I said, you know, like I, I think that this there's something thrilling about this revision of history. Um, my historian's heart is delighted. Now, that led to an attack nowhere near what Stan um what Stan experienced, right? Um, but, uh, you know, just, lot, just lots of trolls on every single social media platform I exist on. They come into my Instagram, they come into my Facebook, into my DMs. There's, you know, like violence threats. There's all that kind of stuff. And But then I did wake up and think, you know what, imagine if I'd written that as an Indigenous person. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Can you imagine? It, it would have been, unth- did you see... The, and we can talk about statues. Statues are not the point. The point is that we still live with what the Uluru Statement called, what, what William Stanner famously described as the torment of powerlessness. This is the problem here. We don't address the root cause of this anger, this sense of being excluded, the weight of history that bears down on us. And it is that absolute powerlessness that we have to accept the imposition of a state on us that 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 locks us out, that continually frustrates our capacity to shape our identities, our destinies, to have I mean, even something like the Uluru Statement and the modest proposal of, of a voice in the Constitution to speak to policy directed towards Indigenous people was seen as an illiberal idea, something that was actually hostile to the idea of Australia. I mean, that when we are constantly framed as that our justice, our truth, our existence is somehow hostile to the state of Australia, it makes it impossible for people like myself who are looking for ways to walk those fault lines, looking at ways to bring people together, to open up a conversation. It makes it impossible for someone like me to go back to people to my own people and say, hold, you know, keep the faith, stay with the struggle. You know, when you are constantly rebuffed, it makes it impossible. And when people like me, as moderate, um, as, as I think rational and calm as I try to engage with this, uh, are attacked as being Stalinist and, and members of the Taliban, this is why it drives so many Aboriginal people out of the debate, out of the discussion. Who wants to go through that ritual, humiliation and attack constantly? It's not good for our mental health apart from anything else. No, that's a very good point. Look, let's take a very quick break there and come back and continue this fascinating discussion. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. All right, welcome back. Now, Stan, just before the break, uh, you were talking about just the toll uh, that it takes, you know, the torment of the powerlessness as you described it. Uh, We've spoken before about, you and I have spoken before about uh, Australia Day, and I think we had, uh, you know, a slightly different view on it. I certainly started from the point of view that uh, there's a a strong case for changing it. You've had a different view. Has that been, have you had cause to rethink that in the context of the furor over these statues and what's going on with the Black Lives Matters movement? No, I, I, I think Australia Day, and this is the point I made in my book about it, is that it speaks precisely to who we are. It reminds us precisely of what Australia values. If we move the date, if we, if we changed it just for the sake of convenience, um, we are not going to solve the problems. Moving the date without empowering the people, without our truth being heard, without treaties being written, without giving structure and architecture, uh, political architecture to the representation of Indigenous culture and voice and belonging and being in the country would be a futile gesture. Uh, So I think right now, Australia Day is everything this country is. It is the remarkable country that we have. It has offered a home to people fleeing persecution and war and famine and revolution. It is a place that is a beacon to so many people around the world of stability and peace and democracy. All of those things are true. But it is also a place that is built on the suffering and the ongoing suffering of my own people. I like the fact that we can hold, have that day to hold Australia's feet to the fire. And if that day is to move, it must move because we have fundamentally reckoned with who we are, not as a political gesture, because we've had too many of them. We had the apology to the stolen generations. We've had 25, 30 years of, of reconciliation, which is, which is, you know, is, is now a politically anachronistic and, and archaic idea that is just not delivered. Um, We've had these things, but we have not fundamentally dealt with who we are. And until we do, more gestures, moving things for the sake of it, is, is, is going to obscure the real challenge of asking who we are. The other point to that is, uh, and I think this is important, is that if we are going to have a future, it needs to be within a liberal democracy in Australia where we feel recognised and represented where we are not a collection of tribes, where we are not always contesting these fundamental things of who we are, where we can have our differences, where we can have these discussions, where but feel as if the, the country that we live in speaks to who we are. To move it right now while we are in, we know it would be hijacked by the culture war. We know it would be reclaimed by the white right as a reclaim the day. And it wouldn't speak at all to the journey we need to take. So, yes, I'd love to see it moved, but I want to see it move when it means something. What do you think, Paul, about this idea of, um, you know, which is embodied in Stan's argument there about Australia Day, of keeping these statues but 
take, taking them from where they are of these, you know, these famous men who have, uh, uh, you know, very bad pasts, you know, who have who 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 uh, were people that uh, by any standards are reprehensible when you look at them. Uh, Julia was talking about King Leopold II, for example. I mean, you, you know, there's just not a redeeming feature of of this of this figure. What do you think of the idea of keeping these statues but uh, keeping them in museums, collecting them somewhere and uh, and having much fuller interpretations of who they were? So King Leopold, we don't need the King Le- Leopold rangers. That, that speaks nothing to our past and so forth. So that's an easy one. I think the ones that are incredibly complex, as, as Stan has indicated, are... Uh, what do we do with them that's meaningful um, rather than just say, okay, well, we'll we'll remove these statues. What are we going to do with them after that is a perfectly good question. And so putting them in a museum, having them properly interpreted, uh, school children visiting them gives them a much... Uh, telling the story of their removal, telling the story of the discussion around their removal is a much better... Um, for me, outcome than simply um, grinding them into dust and walking all over them, as as Julia put it very eloquently on the weekend. I, I think that that the that, that spatial politics is something that we shouldn't that, that we shouldn't let happen without thinking about the complexities of it and the questions which underlie it, and in a sense, re um, reclaiming the the past, the true past, um, in, involves us being um, uh, involves us thinking in much deeper ways about how we treat the symbols of of the past and what we want to judge as entirely unacceptable and what we want to recognise as uh, the legitimate aspirations for a, for a better future um, that we find in the past. And so, yes, museums are a good place to put these things as um, as exhibits of um, wrongs and, and reinscribe them for for the benefit for an educative purpose. Because these statues, Julia, Julia, are history in themselves. It is a fact of history that these prominent people you know were were lauded were the subject of statues and that those statues stood in town squares and and parks and prominent uh, places for in some cases centuries um that's a fact of history as well that we can't we don't want to simply erase and and not be accountable for um as i think you know stan would say you know that's very much the story of uh, white Australian settlement was not just to do uh, all of these acts but to laud the various people who led them and to weave that into the myth we told ourselves about the glorious way in which our country was was uh, constructed. Well, I don't think it's a binary about you either, either might you know, preserve them or topple them. I mean, they grind them into dust. There are so very many opportunities. I mean, you know, I, and it's something I, I wrestle with. When you, when you write, when I wrote a biography, of Queen Victoria, someone as complicated as her, someone who was capable of really incredibly off-putting smallness in her attitudes to Gladstone at other times, and, and, and at other times incredibly progressive when it came to religion, very tender um, to people who were having problems with mental health around her, very kind to, say, alcoholics in her midst, people she met. You had to, and, you know, and the fact that she was very opposed to um, 
the suffragettes, who she said deserved a good spanking. But at the same time, when you read the first-hand accounts of the suffragettes at the time, they were very inspired by her um, and and took, drew um, kind of a lot of strength and sucker from the fact that she had just worked and worked and worked doggedly because the, the life of the Queen particularly, you know, is, is, is a lot of work and then she was very involved in the mechanisms of Cabinet. So I see my responsibility as... You are assessing the evidence and trying to work out which the weight you place on the evidence, but you also have to present it to people to des- to decide for themselves. Every single statue, and let, let's face it, there are there are so many, and very many of them are very similar to each other because we've celebrated the same first person and the same kind of person. If we remain invested in statues, we can put up different kinds of statues around them. I mean, Banksy came up with that. Um, clever suggestion for what to do with Colston's statue. He was saying put it back and then put ropes around it and have figures pulling it down um, kind of mm. to mark this moment. That's one way of telling it. Others have suggested a museum of problematic statues, a museum of villains or um, our colonial past. I don't know, but there's, and there's plaques. And, but I actually think on a local level this is really important. There are some which we need to have national discussions about and, um, and, and to carefully think through. But at a local level this is ought to be decided too. And there's wonderful creative things that, that have been done. I mean, there's especially work in Germany um, with dealing with fascism. Um, there's, some, there's a really interesting guy called, I think, Jochen Gertz. I'm probably mispronouncing it. He's an... He's an artist and he developed this thing called a monument against fascism. So they erected this column in, in, which was clad in lead in this public square in the mid-1980s and they gave people a, a metal pencil um, and a panel saying, we invite the citizens of Harburg and visitors to the town to add their names here to ours. In doing so, we commit ourselves to remain vigilant. As more and more names cover this 12-metre-high lead column, it will gradually be lowered into the ground one day it will have disappeared completely and the site of the Harburg Monument against fascism will be empty. In the long run, it is only we ourselves who can stand up to inju- against injustice. And that's now gradually been lowered and lowered. And now they, when you walk over it, there's only a, a square metre lead plate, which is the cap of the column. So I think that there are so many um, different things. I mean, as we know, the Romans used to take the head off one statue. <laughs> And just put the head of the, the next person on. Or sometimes people could adjust the face, change the nose, put a different name up. They could sometimes do that with gods as well. Um, I'm not I'm not suggesting that, but I'm suggesting that that we really take this conversation seriously and we really think about what it is we value, what it is we honour, and what it is that's missing from the historical record. And the fact that that does what you walk past every day um, that, that's a signal of, of oppression past and present is a form of kind of, um, you know, do they call it casual racism? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a visual sign of something we do not want to be about as a country. And so, how do we address that? And I think there are very many options, and there will be there will be artists and dreamers and thinkers and historians who will come up with so many different ways. Um, and and once once we start to do that, then the you know I think a lot of the impatience for it will will pull aside. Are all statues really the opposite of what we thought? I mean, Simon Shammer, the great British historian, makes the point that statues, far from being kind of, uh, you know, uh, an accoutrement of history are in fact stoppers of history. They tend to freeze the story of a particular person and their times into that one image and that's why taking them down sometimes and re- or reinterpreting them is so vital because 
you know, they've had the opposite effect. But that leads to the, the possibility that all statues which are an attempt to do that are in fact open to reinterpretation and to, and to eventually being removed, that they are inherently temporary if the values of the society that they come to stand in, if the balance of the values that that person represents uh, uh, end up being out of sync with the, uh, the community in which they stand. Anyone have any thoughts on that? Yeah, Mark, I think that we have to chat, you know, look at the assumption here that they are out of sync. I think it, I think Australia is very, very comfortable with its history. I think it's very comfortable with Captain Cook discovered Australia in 1770. I think mm-hmm. it's very comfortable with the myths of our history. I think it's very comfortable with Macquarie and is quite happy to look past or erase what it considers, considers some of the, you know, the, the less savoury uh, aspects of his past. I mean, you know, you'll you'll hear Captain Cook and you know the firing on Weagle men as they stood on their land, telling him to leave as a blemish or an oversight. Or we can look past that. There's always a but after that. He fired on the men, but you know, it's the Peter Fitzsimons mm-hmm. argument that it, on the balance of of everything, he was a good bloke. Well. Do you get to be a good bloke after you have fired on people and then later taken people's land? I mean, you know, this is this idea that that we can look past these things. I think Australia is very comfortable with its history, and I think Australia is um is is a is a is a place where people where people put history aside, and and in some respects that's being good for us that people can come and live here. And they don't have to bring the blood feuds of the Middle East or Europe or the sectarian ethnic divisions that people have had in other lands. And Shia do not have to kill Sunni and Catholic does not have to be at war with Protestant and Macedonian doesn't have to hate Greek um, and that Armenian doesn't have to hate Turk. That we have these histories that are part of us, but in a sense Australia becomes this place where you can write something new Um but if we are young and free, that, that, I mean, that's the myth, isn't we it? We are to, young yeah. and free. And I think for a lot of people, that's what Australia is. It is young and free. It, it, they don't see the price that we have paid for this. I don't think it, it, it is material to their lives. I don't think it frames the way they see their country. So we are here, fewer than 3% of Australia, whose history we cannot leave. We cannot sail to another place. We can't just put it behind us because we live with it, knowing full well that I think Australians are very comfortable with it. And I think we're led by a prime minister who thinks that historical introspection is a sign of, of self-indulgence or weakness. And I think we live in a country that history does not weigh heavily on them. Um, so it's very difficult to, to have these conversations in a place where people either don't want to have them or don't want to hear them or they're very comfortable. They're just very comfortable with that history. Paul, the Prime Minister was asked about uh, the tearing down of some of these statues that was going on around the world the other day at a press conference and he shot back, I'm not interested in tearing things down or in people who are tearing things down, I'm interested in people who want to build things up. It was a, a, a sort of a classic political redirection immediately invalidating uh, the, the activity and uh, and suggesting that he's for for something that is all about the positive and the moving forward. Uh, you know, going to Stan's point, of course, moving forward from a whole bunch from a position, you know, from a plinth of lies, really a plinth of myths about our own our own history. 
Sure. And I mean, that's a classic case of a politician's one-liner, isn't it? Trying to, um, trying to skate over a, a debate with a, with a quip. Um, and of course, it's, it, it's, it's, far, it's far more complicated than that. His, that the, a condition of colonialism has been amnesia, as, as Stan points out, that people um, almost inevitably have to forget the past in order to um, in order to establish a new country on someone else's land um, and the anthem is a perfect example of that um, although it is interesting if you look at the history of that uh, th those words they've been updated a few times um, to take out some of the more obvious um, colonial references, and that we might say absolutely that they need another update. Um, and it's these symbols that we're talking about. What we perhaps should be talking about is the underlying injustices, which are encapsulated in those symbols. It's impossible to say for we're young and free uh, in a country where the First Peoples have a history dating back 60,000 years, according to records, uh, and it may be longer, uh, without com coming to the conclusion that the young and free bit is not that part of Australia. It doesn't refer to the Indigenous history. Would you agree with that, Stan? Yeah. I, look, it, it says to us that all of these things say to us, that the statues, the Prime Minister's comments, the, the attacks on us each time we try to raise this, the anthem, all of these things say to us that, um, that Australia is not, that we are not part of this project, Australia, um, that, that Australia is very comfortable with those symbols of its nationhood, with its statues, with its anthem, with its myths, with its history. It is very comfortable with that. Now, this, this presents a real challenge for us. If we seek the justice that we seek, if we seek the voice that we seek, the representation that we seek, if we seek to keep ourselves alive as a people, we have to reckon with the real politic of Australia. Now, the reality is to tell Australians that you are a morally repugnant nation that needs rehabilitation, uh, and until we do that, we won't be. We will be a nation that is essentially illegitimate. Doesn't speak to the reality of what most people see when they look at their lives. They look at a multicultural, tolerant country. It is safe. It is secure. They pay their taxes. They have, well, you know, good hospitals, largely good schools. They drive on good roads. Um, they can live in peace. And we're here saying to them, actually, hang on, this is not what the world looks like from our, from our side. This is not what Australia looks like from our side. But we are constantly um, corralled into this ideological and historical cul-de-sac that we cannot escape from. So we're either going to spend the rest of our lives frustrated, um, pushing against a system that will not move, trying to speak truth to a people who largely don't want to hear it or, or, or are apathetic um, and, and asking for change. How do we grapple with that? Uh, how do we navigate those the politics of that? How do we try to get the political change that we need by bringing the Australian people with us when we're, we're speaking into this 
void. It is, it is a real challenge for us. And I think the Uluru Statement pushed against the limits of that. I think the failure of Uluru uh, is, is a moment that we really deeply need to reflect on what Aboriginal people can hope for in Australia and what Australia is prepared to give uh, and how we can even begin to have these conversations. Now, I want to go to Julia in a sec about uh, the, the sort of slippery slope argument because that's that's one that comes up here. But just quickly staying with what you were just saying then, Sam, for a moment, how, how critical was it, how instrumental was it in this problem that we now have about facing our history that the idea of the black armband view of history was created, that, that essentially it became... Uh, you know, a, a sort of a category that you could simply shift any argument, the sorts of arguments you were talking about, into that category, diminish them as a black armband yep. view, and then stop talking about them. Yeah, and we are illegitimate. And if we come to Australia saying that we need justice founded in the truth, um, it, it disqualifies us from that, that we are framed as somehow attacking the state. Uh, it's It's this... It's, we, we are seen as hostile to Australia to speak of our existence and the truth of our history. And our statues tell us that, and our anthems tell us that, and our political leaders tell us that. And then we bemoan the fact that Aboriginal people still die 10 years younger, that Aboriginal people have the worst health and housing and education and employment statistics are the most imprisoned people in the country. And we wonder why that happens when Aboriginal people are consistently reminded that we sit outside of Project Australia, that Australia is broadly a nation founded around ideas of egalitarianism and assimilation. And for us to engage in that requires us to give up something fundamental about who we are, that liberal that liberalism is founded on a progressive belief that you move on from history. It does involve a measure of forgetting. And, and I think the other thing that I want to point out as well, Mark, and, and this is something that I struggle with, and, and, and I'm very aware amongst our own people, is that historical vengeance and grievance can also be toxic, and that an identity that is founded and framed in endless historical grievance and resentment uh, is, is, is poisonous. And if you look around the world, you know, this is what has been the root of the modern conflicts of the world, Hutu versus Tutsi. You know, North Korea, South Korea, India, Pakistan, China that talks about the 100 years of humiliation, Erdogan who tells his people to, you know, to re never forget the caliphate. You know, Viktor Orban plays this, this line. Vladimir Putin, you know, laments the end of the Soviet empire as the great catastrophe of the 20th century. Identity that is framed around unending historical grievance and resentment becomes poisonous, toxic, and is weaponized. And I'd hate to see that happen amongst my own people, which is all the more important that we do this in a way that we open these things up to light mm. and we allow voices to be heard and we do not frame everything around a rejection of who we are or see our claims for truth and justice as being hostile to the idea of Australia. Makes so much sense to me. The the uh, It seemed to me that the statement by the Prime Minister, I'm only interested in people who are building things up, was was almost uh, the black armband view of history without saying it. That, that, it that to suggest yeah. otherwise was uh, was to you know be indulging in this. Julia, this idea of the slippery slope, and I guess this uh, um, brings in cancel culture that's uh, all all the rage in discussion at the moment as well. This idea that if it's legitimate for people to 
remove statues, to deface monuments, to uh, apply with uh, anger in many cases uh, the the sort of righteous values of today against um, historical monuments, then where does it stop? Do you change street names? Do you change the names of squares? Do you? Ch- I mean, we've already seen the names of electorates change, of course, and 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 that's been very justified, but. It's it's a concern that some people have, and of course it opens up the possibility of monuments that we might say are extremely uh, vital to our values now, very central to our values now. I'm thinking, for example, of the Civex Memorial on Lake Burley Griffin here in Canberra, you know, commemorating the 2001 death of, deaths of uh, so many um, uh, people, children as well, in that uh, fated vessel. Uh, if all of those, you know, is everything up for grabs if you uh, agree to the idea, if you validate the idea that, uh, you know, that the people can rise up and just sort of tear things down? I think that we need to shift the conversation from simply the statues and things we're challenging to what actually is not there. What would we imagine now would, would represent our history? Why isn't there a museum of the frontier wars in in, in Canberra or in elsewhere. Why aren't all of those sites around the street, they've only just been mapped, the sites of massacres and so on, or why, why don't mm. we kind of walk our streets better understanding what actually occurred there, which is so much more important than a name that's affixed to a pole that might tell us how to get there. Like we, are, we, we, we remain, like kind of, I think, fundamentally ignorant about that. Like weirdly enough, I walked in to my um, home last night um, after doing the drum and my 11-year-old came running up to me and he was like, oh, my gosh, did you know that um, Aboriginal people were like they were engineers and architects and they had these houses and they stored grain and they created these traps where these fish could flip in the air and I was like, what has happened at school today? And they they watched that down and watched Dark Emu and so we had a whole conversation about that. I don't want to get fixated on the, you know, what simply what is there. I don't see it as a as a slippery slope because we've barely begun. Like how many things have actually been, how many plaques have been put up to fully interpret things in Australia? Um, there is such a gap between what historians know and what we present as public history. It is huge and we need to kind of try to bring that together. I mean, the statue of Queen Victoria outside the QVB was has been moved. That came from Ireland when they didn't want it anymore, when it was, you know, she's associated with the famine as a famine queen. I think a bit unfairly actually, but she was found lying in a field, came over to her came over to us. The statue of Victoria that is um, you know, in near Hyde Park, not far from the Statue of the Cook that we're talking about. Now that's sitting opposite the law courts. That it's been rotated. It used to face Albert. And they spun it around to face the law court. Something, by the way, she would have been infuriated by. She always would have wanted to have her eyes on Albert. We do these things without note. But when we talk about somehow, you know, like restoring or a better comprehending kind of the, the um, race in our history and what actually occurred, it strikes this core that which we can see through what um, Stan is talking about seems to create this completely disproportionate burden for people who are trying to talk about it. Um, I think we need to think about that, and I think we need to think about what we can do to, you know, build up and restore and and tell a full full story. Yes, and do you and you know and you know what it does. But sorry, do, do you know what it does? It is a burden, and there are so many things that we as Indigenous people would rather be doing. 
you know, wouldn't it be great if you could be an Indigenous person and be a, a, a nuclear physicist and, you know, focus all your energies on being the best physicist you wanted to be or the best carpenter or the best, you know, engineer or architect or school teacher? Um, you know, I have as much interest and I've spent more of my life reporting the Middle East and China and Europe and, and, and yet we carry this burden. We must always engage. We must always carry that load. And this is what the weight of history does to you. It suffocates you. It, it limits you. It stops you being all you can be because you must always engage with the process of trying to educate and open up people to seeing who we are, to see us as human beings. And I don't want my children to have to worry about carrying that burden. Can I add something in there, Mark? Is this, yeah. I was on the drum the other night. We had um, Associate Professor Chelsea Bond, whose um, area of expertise is about is about race and health. Um, and she was talking about how it's always framed as, framed as a problem. We have this kind of, you know, from um, colonial days to today, when we talk about Indigenous people, it's always, it's a problem. And I was reminded of my own history books that I went back through my year 12 history books, not my year 12, my high school history books recently. And the first mention of Indigenous people was in year eight. And it was under, it was in a list that we were wrote down that was, that was problems for squatters. It was weather, right, weather, isolation, Aboriginal people. I can't remember what else was on there. And I was so shocked and struck Mm. by that. And this is the generation that is kind of in Parliament now and in the courts now and in the media now, and this is what we were taught. Um, That's the It's a fundamental shift instead of saying, to, to talk about how proud we should be of this ancient culture, like how incredibly proud. Yeah, and I think you can make an optimistic um, observation there based on what you said about your 11-year-old, Julia, and that is that the the Prime Minister's comments are actually um, like it's an illustration of the political class being behind public perceptions. I think younger people, and we saw the same thing with same-sex marriage, I think younger people in particular get it. Well, they certainly get it more than the generation of Scott Morrison, that there is something that we need to fix. Um, and so maybe we can be a bit more, uh, maybe we can be optimistic that there are, is a generating a generation coming up who, who actually understand that we can't go forward without, without dealing with these things. But I, I wonder about that, though, Paul, because, you know, could we have had more optimism than the 1967 referendum, which is still a high watermark, it's still the most resounding yes vote Australia has ever had. And and 50 years later, we're still talking about Aboriginal people dying in police custody and dying 10 years younger than the rest of the population. And, and I share with you that that optimism amongst younger people that I see amongst my, my children's friends, um, but they're going to enter into power structures that are so rigid that are they really going to be able to to deconstruct those um, when they will be the beneficiaries of those? And, and I look at my own children who could not have had a more cosmopolitan, privileged upbringing, living in different parts of the world, attending private school, and they've been followed in shops. Uh, they've been harassed by police. They've had 
the most appalling things said to them by police. They've had their bags pulled off them and tipped open and left all over the ground. They've been intimidated. Um, and these are boys who you would think if you were ticking every box about what you want Australia to be, that these were boys who would fulfil that. Uh, so I, I, I want to believe in the optimism, but the power structures are so rigid and whiteness does carry such inherent privilege and white people benefit from the privilege of those power structures that even with the goodwill, we can't seem to shift it. And Aboriginal individuals, despite all their efforts, are, are at risk of constantly feeling the weight of that state and the weight of that history. And it seems like there's there's so many ways in which that is reinforced. And we've been, you know, sort of focusing a lot on on statues because of this movement to tear them down. But there's a whole range of ways in which a whole range of subtle ways, you know, passive racism and ingrained racism, the assumption of of history that is far too simplistic, but we just settle for it because it's a it's an easy understanding of where we came from. I mean and, and as Julia said, it's about what's not there a lot of the time. I mean, where are the the, the statues uh, around Canberra even of, of Eddie Marbo, Vincent Lingari, Charles Perkins, Lionel Rose, Faith Bandler, all of these names that you can think of. And it's also true of of prominent women, the women that have uh, been trailblazers that are that are unrepresented. Where's the statue of Joan Kerner or Dorothy Tangney or or indeed Julia Gillard? Presumably she'll get one because the the prime ministers do, but. Um, it's, uh, you know, th these are very powerful gestures uh, and, the, and the, the omissions are very powerful gestures as well. And I think that's what uh, has, has come through all of this. Well, look, thank you very much for, thank you all of you for uh, being with us today. It's been a really terrific discussion uh, and uh, I know that we could talk for much longer. I was just sitting here enjoying the, the great wisdom that was that was coming forward and I'm very confident that people listening to this podcast will have shared that view. So thank you to Julia Baird, Paul Pickering and Stan Grant. I'll be back with Democracy Sausage early next week and until then, ciao. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.